Unplugged In podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. And joining me today is Dr. Penny, Benny Pizer, the director of the Global Warming Policy Foundation, and Francis Benton, the founder of the popular Mon- uh, Manhattan Contrarian blog. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. So you're both outspoken critics of net zero climate policies. And I guess where I want to start is just how did both of you get into that discussion? What sparked your interest in energy policy? And obviously, it's something that's front and center now um, as things have developed. Uh, how How have your ideas and thinking developed over time? Well, the Global Warming Policy Foundation was actually founded by Nigel Lawson, who was the chancellor of the Exchequer under Margaret Thatcher. And his main concern was the economic impact of these policies. And he discovered when he looked into it that most treasuries around the world hadn't really looked at the cost and benefits of the policies that were being adopted by governments around the world, mainly in the Western world. And he really wanted to understand, uh, because we're talking about the kind of radical transformation of of, uh, Western economies, whether the costs um, were um, were actually comparable to the claim that these enormous costs were necessary um, to save you know, societies from climate change. And that was his interest. And the Global Warming Policy Foundation has been looking at the economics, and the costs and the benefits of these policies ever since. And we, we've been encouraging more scrutiny and more discussion about these very issues. Um, and now, of course, everyone is talking about it, but it took some while because governments were claiming <coughs> that these policies would lower costs and would make life much better for people and uh, economies. And of course, the opposite has been happening. And Francis, how about you? Your foray into energy. I've uh, been a long reader of your blog and really appreciate a lot of the work that you do. It's uh Interesting to hear a voice from uh, from Manhattan speaking about these issues. Well, thank you. Yes, I, so Benny uh, comes to us from the UK, but uh, but I live in in Manhattan actually, right in the middle of New York City, and I got interested in this out of the blue. I in in the uh, early two thousands, there was a lot of talk about climate change, just like now, I think it was called global warming in those days, and how it was so worrying and how we had to stop burning fossil fuels that was out there at the time. And I just had a radar that said stopping burning fossil fuels, that's kind of not so easy and extremely costly. Maybe I'd better look into this. So just completely independently, I started reading articles. I I didn't come into it with any uh, perspective that I was either going to be on the, let's say, the alarmist or the realist side of the debate. As far as I knew, the debate was real between serious people. 
but uh, the more I studied up on it, the more I came to think that, the, first of all, the global warming scare was overhyped, and second of all, that the proposed solutions were completely unworkable. <laughs> and and but, but that was based on independent study of my own. I wasn't associated with any organization. And the blog you're talking about, I, I began in 2012. At, at the time, in the early 2000s, I was a partner of one of the major law firms. I began the blog before I retired, but not that long before. So I retired in 2016, and then the blog has become, let's say, more of my time since then. So I'd love our conversation to focus on what's happening in Europe right now, but then also to uh, I'd like to discuss sort of the implications for uh, what it means for policy here in the U.S. I get the sense that American audiences don't really understand what's going on in Europe right now. Like we have high gasoline prices here in the U.S., but we're not facing the huge electricity cost increases like you're seeing there. Yeah. So um, if you could just outline the road to what led Europe down this green net zero path and what exact and just sort of explain exactly what um what is going on today in terms of the energy crisis okay so <clears throat> the um basic route to the green agenda in europe was taken roughly 30 years ago just after the fall of the berlin wall when um the general assumption was that um Europe and most of the world was running out of gas and was running out of oil. And the future was clearly renewable energy, which would become very cheap at some point and competitive because gas price and oil prices would go through the roof. And Europe would become the world champion of export uh, to the rest of the world of renewable energy, solar panels, wind turbines, and so on. Europe would become the energy superpower of the 21st century. That was the goal. Um, of course, that whole idea collapsed quite quickly, not least through the uh, shale revolution, which um, showed that we're not running out of gas and we're not running out of oil. There's plenty around for decades, if not centuries to come. And the other assumption, of course, was that there would soon be a kind of international legal agreement worldwide to cut CO2 emissions and Europe would benefit from that. And Europe would essentially become the export superstar of you know, the green technology to the rest of the world. That assumption failed, of course, as well, because no one at the time anticipated that China could do this much cheaper for half the price or less. And so instead of Europe becoming this uh, world champion of renewable energy exports, uh, Europe became ground zero for renewable energy uh, technology imports, primarily from China. So the whole agenda, and in, in instead of reducing costs, the agenda has actually driven costs up very dramatically. And the current crisis uh, is a combination of all of this. Europe is extremely dependent still on uh, imports from Russia. 40% um, of the gas comes from Russia in Europe. 50% of the coal comes from Russia. 30% of the oil comes from Russia. And because many European 
countries have phased out coal and uh, phased down nuclear, um, there was a uh, huge demand in gas. And that has driven demand up and has also driven up the price of gas, which is currently eight times higher than in the US. So the costs have risen dramatically and we are facing the worst energy cost crisis, energy crisis since World War II now in, in Europe. To put those costs in perspective, you know, I know one of the reasons I got interested in energy policy is because, you know, the ability to access energy at an affordable rate is really important to just everyday, everyone's everyday life, right? Um, these cost increases, what impact is it having on just sort of everyday citizens in Europe right now? And um, what's your outlook for the future in terms of where costs are going and um, the sort of impact that it's going to have? Well, to give you uh, an idea of what is happening in the UK, um, energy in a couple of days, energy bills, so the cost of your electricity and gas bill is going to double. Um, there is a price cap in Britain whereby energy suppliers are only able to charge a certain amount. Uh, of course, at current market prices, what it means is it's just the, the, the increase in costs have been delayed. So the regulator is now allowing the suppliers to essentially double the uh, bills. So households will face, by, as of April, a doubling of their energy bills, and by the end of the year, a trebling of their energy bills, which means that about a quarter of households won't be able to pay their energy bills. And no one knows how energy suppliers or the government are going to deal with a quarter of the public not being able to pay their energy bills. It's, it's, uh, it's unprecedented. And as I said, no one knows how to deal with that kind of energy emergency. So we aren't quite as far along here in the United States in terms of adopting net zero policies, but with the current administration, um, there's certainly a move in that direction. And some people, our organization included, are concerned that technologically and economically, we aren't in a place yet where we can do that. Um, and we're looking at what's happening in Europe right now. And we're trying to make the case that, look, if we go down this path, we're going to end up in a similar position. Francis, you're from the state of New York or New you're from New York City. Uh, I know the state has pursued policies along these lines. Can you just talk a little bit about what's going on in the state of New York? And then you've written quite a bit about how realistic and um, or achievable these policies are. If you could just talk a little bit about um, your thoughts there. Too. Sure. And, and uh, first, just to start briefly with the United States, the, 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 the nation, the federal government has, has not formally adopted any of these net zero standards like like all carbon eliminated from electricity generation by 2030 or 2040 or whatever. Uh, Biden announced that by a press release uh, in 2021. But other than that, uh, the federal government hasn't done it. But the state of New York adopted a statute in uh, 2019, took effect on January 1, 2020. And that statute has these net zero goals. I, I'm not going to be able from memory to give them exactly, but I, I it, 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 it 
basically looks to the elimination of fossil fuels from electricity generation by 2030 or 2035 and for complete uh, net zero for the entire economy, all other sectors by 2050. And that has been adopted by statute. Took effect in the uh, beginning of 2020. And along with the statute came a gaggle of panels and advisory boards and committees uh, to meet and to come out with reports on how the hell we're going to do this. Uh, uh, and for the year 2020, we basically heard nothing and they started coming out. These reports started coming out in late 2021 and we've now gotten a bunch more of them in early 2022. Uh, I try to read many of them as they come out. It's impossible. There are thousands of pages of them. <laughs> there, are, there are a handful of people on the skeptic side who actually try to read them. But I certainly read enough of them to know that they have no clue how they're going to do this. Literally no clue. Um, well, the first thing, goal number one is to decarbonize the electric supply system, electricity supply. And... Uh, electricity supply, as you may know, is only about uh, a third of final energy usage. So far more final energy usage comes from other things. Uh, the second biggest thing being home heat, which is largely non-electric, and, and automobiles, which are 99% today non-electric. And then there are other sectors like agriculture and industry and airplanes and, and so forth, which... Yeah in the aggregate are about two thirds. But so goal number one is to decarbonize electricity. How are they gonna decarbonize electricity? Well, it, it, the, the first thing, if you, look at, if you look at their numbers, they declared New York is already up to something like 25% uh, of its electricity from renewables. Well, it turns out that far and away, almost all of that is Niagara Falls. So they have a gigantic, power plant at Niagara Falls. Uh, and you know, if they had four more Niagara Falls, uh, they could they could decarbonize the electricity, but they Unfortunately, don't. Unfortunately, we don't. Yeah. They don't. So uh, what what is the next plan? Because they, as of today, they have extremely minimal amounts of wind and solar. They have, they have some wind farms upstate. There's tremendous opposition from the locals to more wind farms. So the big idea, the first big idea, is thousands of wind turbines off the coast of uh, Long Island in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, that also is facing tremendous opposition. Some of the ocean front, much of the ocean front there is some of the world's most expensive real estate, and they're planning to put literally thousands of wind turbines off the Hamptons. And the wealthy people in the Hamptons are having none of it. I'm sure some. There might of them, be some pushback. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm sure some of them are happy for it, but there's plenty of wealthy people ready to finance lawsuits to block it. As of the, to to decarbonize our electricity would require thousands upon thousands of these uh, turbines, and as of today, there are none, not one single one, nor is there one under construction. I suppose you could also decarbonize with nuclear. Uh, however, they've just gone the opposite direction. We had two nuclear plants north of New York City, about 30, 40 miles. So in the suburban zone of New York City, the people living around them have not liked them, even though they've never been a problem to anybody. 
and they were closed over the last couple of years. There still are a couple of nuclear plants in New York, but they are way, way upstate in remote areas, and there are no plans or building plans to build more. So the net zero thing requires thousands of wind turbines, which they haven't even started with. <laughs> the other thing that it requires, and they have no idea how much it requires, is storage. They haven't done any realistic calculation or planning for how much storage they would need to back up uh, a wind solar system. And maybe it would be helpful to your listeners if I explain sure, that. Sure, yeah, pl please. Because it's not necessarily intuitive or it's not necessarily obvious, but if you just focus on it and think about it for even a few minutes, you realize how important it is. Uh, electricity is consumed at the very instant that it is produced. So there has to be a complete balance between the production and consumption of electricity you know, going up and down during the day as people turn on lights or come home from work or whatever it may be. And that can be done with what's called dispatchable power plants, mostly fossil fuel, which can be adjusted as the demand on the grid sh shifts a little. Wind and solar don't work that way. And there are, so they work when the wind blows and the sun shines, and sometimes they do, but there are substantial periods of time when they don't work at all. Come night, there is zero production from wind and zero production from solar. And sometimes calm nights, like in the winter when it's cold, can be high, high demand times for electricity. And there are plenty of other times when the demand for electricity is high, but wind and solar are not producing much, like a calm evening in the summertime. Um, so you can fix the problem of intermittency of wind and solar by having backup from natural gas power plants that ramp up and down as the wind and sun ramp down and up. But the hypothesis here is natural gas isn't allowed anymore. We're right. Yeah. Not have any. So now what are you going to do? And they don't have any idea for that. It takes it, it the the main concept is storage. So on, on if it's on June 21 at noon, if it's windy, you get tremendous production from the wind and the sun. So you can overbuild that system. So you produce on a windy, sunny day more electricity than you need, and you can store it up in batteries. How much battery storage are you going to need to get yourself all the way through the year without the system failing and with no fossil fuel backup? This is the place where they're completely deficient, where they haven't addressed it. They haven't done any calculations. I don't think they have any idea how big the problem is, even though they're trying to transition the energy system of, of an area with 20 million people like the state of New York. Uh, I've done some calculations and uh, other people have done spreadsheets to indicate based on historical data of production and usage, production from wind and solar systems, how they go up and down, how much storage would you need to ba balance this out for the whole year? And the answer is you need about 30 full days worth of storage. For the state of New York, this comes to something in the order of 20,000 gigawatt hours of battery storage. I don't know if that sounds small or big to your audience, but it is an enormous amount of battery storage. And if you were to try to buy it in Tesla style batteries, they go for about a hundred to $200 a kilowatt hour. So you have to multiply that 
20,000 gigawatt hours by a million <laughs> and then by 150. And I think you get $3 trillion <laughs> doing that, which is, which is far more than the entire GDP of the state of New York. Sure. And by the way, you also have to store up power all the way from the summer to the winter in this system. And Tesla batteries can't do that, nor does any existing battery. Maybe it will be invented, but nobody's done it yet. So it's just it's a it's a total exercise in fantasy at this point, and it's just a question of when it's going to run into the wall. And so here in Europe, it seems to be running into the wall. Uh, at the luncheon that we were at today, that where you guys were the speakers, um, you mentioned that there's starting to be a rethink in Europe here. Could you talk a little bit about how? The energy crisis has sort of opened up the debate and how Europe is starting to rethink these policies. Yeah. So the war in Ukraine, Putin's invasion of Ukraine has blown up the entire policy consensus in Europe um, on the energy policy issue. Uh, what is clear is that the Europeans are desperate for alternative energy supplies. Um, they are too dependent on, on, on Russia and Russian imports. And they also realize that uh, their energy mix has become too narrow. They've gone, uh, to, they've prioritized renewables, which also means significant increase in natural gas as a backup. As Francis explained, that there are big renewable energy systems all over Europe, but there are long periods also in Europe where they do not pr produce enough or hardly any energy during these uh, periods, and they need the backup, and that is mainly natural gas. So as renewables increase, and the amount of renewables increase, so, did, uh, so has natural gas and the demand has gone through the roof, price has gone through the roof. So um, what is happening in many European countries, they are now beginning to go back to burning coal. So they are beginning to realize that they need these a, a wider mix of different forms of energy and coal suddenly plays a very important role again, sure. which you know, was, on its way out. That was the general consensus. The complete phase out of coal has been uh, put into question. There's a return, even old mothballed power plants are being fired up again. Um, of course, the government <coughs> is saying this is only temporary and this will only be for a year or two. But you know, once you start that uh, going back, and uh, you see that it makes economic sense because it, it can reduce the cost. It will be very difficult to overcome in years to come. So there is a complete new opening of the energy debate. I would say after 30 years of wishful thinking, Europe has been mocked by reality. And uh, the current crop of political leaders have no idea how to solve this issue. So it's, it's up in the air uh, with all different voices and different proposals and different ideas. There's no consensus, there's no agreement, only the acknowledgement that Europe can't continue the current or the green 
path that they have taken. So there is no clear solution to this, uh, or no short-term solution to this energy cost crisis. But my reading of the situation is that there will be new ideas, uh, new proposals, new paths um, with much bigger variety of energy sources coming back into the energy mix. You're starting to see that a little bit like in Germany, right? They're rethinking nuclear. Um, I, I know they, they've um, closed down or have been trying to close down yeah. nuclear plants. Um, hasn't there been a rethink of nuclear? And um, as you mentioned, they, they've turned on coal plants and um, some things. So there is obviously a rethinking on nuclear all over Europe, including Germany. And my expectation is that there will be a nuclear renaissance in Europe, but that will take years and years. Uh, the, the French president has announced that they want to build six or seven new nuclear power plants, but this takes 10, 15 years. Yeah. Um, so, but I'm pretty sure there will be more nuclear power plants being built and commissioned, and there's also the hope of these smaller modular reactors, the SMRs, um, but again, no one knows when they will uh, be able to actually be deployed. Um, the Germans are actually have now the government, which includes the Green Party, which is in government, they have uh, announced that they will close down the last three nuclear power plants by the end of this year. Um, it's much easier for them to fire up the coal-fired power plants, the coal power plants, uh, which is an irony, given that the Green Party is and the left is basically the, the government, and they are now going to yeah. go. And, and it's the price they pay for uh, banning fracking and banning shale gas, which could have, you know, some of the gas uh, cost issue. But in most European countries, fracking is banned. And so therefore, there is no shale revolution in Europe, which makes a big difference because uh, it would have, I think, um, minimized the, the cost, the spike in, in gas prices. This is going to be one of my next questions is long term policy changes that need to be made um, to open up uh, technologies like shale. In the popular discourse, at least here in America, um, all these issues that we've been discussing and the problems that are happening here in Europe, the the path to net zero is still seen sort of as a given. Coming from Europe, where you guys are further along this path, what advice do you have for people who are trying to steer us in a different direction a little bit? Uh, what advice do you have for people who are working on these issues? And um, Well, the biggest advice from Europe is to warn American lawmakers to <coughs> not repeat the mistakes the Europeans have made, to make sure that the energy mix is broad so that if one particular source of energy becomes expensive, you have the option to rely on other sources. It's, it's all about the energy mix. If you narrow that down too much, the, the risk of a significant spike in prices and the impact it has on the economy and on you know on, on families and households is so much more. So you spread. It's like a portfolio. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's yeah. like a portfolio. You wouldn't put all your eggs in one basket, because if that basket goes belly up, 
your, your investment goes belly up. So you have to spread the risk. And in many respects, it's the same with uh, your energy mix. The wider you spread, the better for the uh, mi minimizing the risk of a, of a real energy cost crisis. Fine. Let me let me just uh, sure. pitch in on that one, um, uh, on advice that might be given. The the thing that uh, U.S. citizens, policymakers, politicians need to get their heads around is that there is no amount of wind and solar energy that you can build that will ever replace fossil fuels. It, it's not in the nature of wind and solar because they're. It, Forget my whole complicated thing about lower and higher times of the year and so forth, and just think about one calm night when the wind and solar produce zero. It doesn't matter if you build a million wind turbines or a billion or a trillion wind turbines, they are not going to produce anything, and neither are solar panels on a calm night. So you cannot go to net zero with just wind and solar. You have to have a storage solution. It's 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 absolutely critical or a backup solution, but the backup is fossil fuels. If you're not willing to use fossil fuels, then it's storage. And you have to confront the cost of storage, the size of batteries, the amount of natural resources you're gonna to have to use to make them and, and the cost. So I just have one last question for you guys. And long-term, it seems that extreme environmentalism is an issue in that it places huge constraints on our ability to do anything economically, uh, to use human ingenuity to improve, you know, our lives. And so it's sort of a cultural issue, right? Where the culture is pushing back on the things that we need to be able to do to use energy and improve our lives. What can we do long-term to push back against this uh, in terms of the culture? So radical environmentalism is comes as the price of a very highly developed, wealthy society. It's a luxury that we can afford when we live in uh, wealthy countries. That's why it's mainly wealthy countries where environmentalists are making these kind of campaigns and claims. Once people are struggling to pay their bills or heat their homes, all of that goes out of the window. And that's what we're seeing now in Europe. I mean, the fact that the Green Party is accepting coal-fired power plants is a clear uh, indication that there are much more important priorities, existential priorities, much more important than the environment. And that realization is true for every country. You go to poor countries, developing countries, their main priority is to, to have electricity, right? No yeah. matter how you generate it. So what I suggest is that in a way, as, as long as people are able to afford electricity and energy and afford a car, can drive, feed their families, the environmental movement will always flourish because it's a luxury that societies can afford. <clears throat> Once people have to choose between heating and eating, choose between affordable energy and unaffordable energy, all of that becomes irrelevant. So hopefully 
um, you don't have to repeat the kind of mess and, and misery that many European families, millions of European families are now facing. Um, but, you know, this is human nature. When, when you're, you know, this is when, when you think everything is hunky-dory, everything is fine, people come with all sorts of ideas mm -hmm. and, and environmental utopian dreams, which make eventually, can, can cause all sorts of trouble. Uh, yes, if I can uh, uh, pitch in on that for a moment, uh, I would say that I, and I'm sure Benny, want a clean environment and a clean planet, uh, absolutely as much as anybody, but we all consume energy. Uh, if you've ever lived through a lengthy blackout, I bet you don't want to do it again. Uh, and And... I think people in Africa or India who today don't have electricity ought to have it. And you can't generate energy or electricity with fairy dust. So I think the environment, environmentalists are essentially proposing, don't worry about it, we can, we can replace all these fossil fuels with fairy dust. Now, they actually say wind and solar, and wind and solar can generate some electricity some part of the time but they cannot generate all the electricity we need all of the time. So if they're saying it can generate all the electricity all of the time, they are talking about fairy dust and it's not gonna work. Now, what's the best thing that could happen to us? The best thing that can happen to us is have a few jurisdictions. And I have nominated Germany as my candidate, but New York is, can be another or California, which are going down this road far faster uh, the earlier dates than anybody else, and we can all watch them fail and learn our lesson from that. And we should, by all means, have the safest, cleanest energy generation that we can come up with. But it has to and, work. And reliable. It has to work. And it has to be affordable. And it the does. truth is, the truth is, in our lifetimes, fossil fuels are going to be a big part of the mix. My guests today have been Dr. Benny Pizer and Francis Men. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having us.